I love it. Um, I was reminded this morning as we were singing that great, powerful passage in Romans chapter 8. It begins in verse 1 and says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. In verse 14 it says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. How many are thankful that you're his child? He's your father. It goes on and picks up in verse 15 and it says that we've not been given again the spirit of bondage again to fear. We've been given the spirit of adoption, the placement as sons, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Everybody say, Abba, Father. Now, that's a Hebrew way of saying, Daddy, God. Now, you know, it's, it's one thing to think of God as Father. It's something entirely different to think of a relationship where you could call him Daddy. Maybe that's too familiar for you. Uh, but, but I want you to, to really meditate on that this morning as we celebrate Father's Day. We're grateful for our Heavenly Father. We're we are grateful today for all of those who've been given the, the charge to steward our lives as young men and women. And some of you might be in a place today where you would say, well, yeah, you don't know how my dad was. Well, let me just remind you that we honor in spite of, because none of us were raised in sinless homes. Matter of fact, we're not sinless to be able to raise our children and so we have to back up and acknowledge we're, we're going to do that, that we're going to honor the position and we're going to ask God to heal us maybe of some things we need to be healed from. But aren't you thankful that we're his child? Hallelujah. You may be seated this morning in the presence of the Lord. It's an honor today to be with you and I'm excited to participate in this summer series and I want to really give honor where honor is due. That's what the scripture says to do. Pastor Haley Vest really uh, is led the charge in putting this whole series together and actually arranging the topics. And uh, I, I just am so grateful she, she pulled all this together and put all this stuff up here. I feel like I need to grill a burger and jump in the sandbox and then wash off in the pool and, and play some, what do you call that game right there? Cornhole, yeah, play that and uh, get, probably get beat by some of these professionals in our church here. Some of the guys uh, really know how to do this. We're grateful today to have you. Thank you if you're a first-time guest for coming. There are a lot of amazing churches in West Memphis, Marion, and yet you've come and honored the Lord today and privileged us by being able to worship with you, alongside you. We thank you for coming. Uh, you're our guest. We hope that you're blessed by this service this morning as we honor our fathers and as we pick up and continue with the third in the series called Staycation. Um, I heard Pastor Jeremy last week who did an absolutely phenomenal job. Let's give him a hand if you would please. Uh, on dealing with the subject of uh, unrealistic expectations. There are legitimate unrealized expectations that we have of one another. And that's one thing. But then holding unrealistic expectations over maybe our parents or even our children or a spiritual leader uh, and expecting them to be the do-all and end-all of everything, to fix everything in our lives, that's something that only God the Father, a position that only He can hold. Come on, somebody. As a matter of fact, anything, I believe, that causes you to cease from trusting in God alone is the spirit of the Antichrist. Um, don't think of against. The word anti doesn't always mean against. Literally in the, in the Greek, it, it, it means in the place of. Um, so many times we hear that word and we think about somebody that's coming out in direct opposition. And you know, that's obvious. We would see that. We would recognize it, smell it from afar off. 
But the enemy is more subtle than that. When the spirit of Antichrist comes, it doesn't come defiantly standing right in the face of everything that is Christ-like, but it will come and just sort of slither its way in and replace, it will stand in the place of or instead of Christ. So anything that causes you to trust in anything, yourself, your ability, your ingenuity, your strength, your intellect, your creativity, your money, well, anything, we can keep the list going on and on and on and on. Anything that would cause me to trust in those things other than in God alone is the spirit of instead of Christ, okay? And, and that marks us as uh, headed for uh, reaping a real crop. Sowing and reaping is something that still is universal. It, it's working. It's been working since the first day of creation. Somebody say amen. And so this morning, we want to jump in with number three in the series Staycation. I'm hearing that word more and more all over the place. Um, uh, some commercials came on this week and uh, dealing with, uh, you know, staying at home and having to deal with issues. I think the subtitle of this is getting a little bit of R&R from the things that hinder us or maybe drag us down, I think is the way it was said. And so this morning, in the spirit of moving through some of these things, we're staying home and we're going to enjoy our own area. We're going to you know, step out and do some things in our community in Memphis, Marion, West Memphis, and uh, enjoy our house, maybe do some home repair. We're going we're gonna to hang out in the spirit, in, this, in the spirit of this summer series, staycation. I'm not vacating the things that are hindering me. I'm going to stay home and deal with them. I'm going to do that project that my wife, somebody, I, I saw a meme the other day over the internet, maybe it was Instagram, and it said, Look, men, men will get done what they said they would do. You don't have to remind them month after month after month. They'll, they'll get it done. Some of you will get that. <laughs> uh, and, and some of us brothers have to be reminded. We need a little bit of nagging to, to get things done. And so in staycation, we're actually going to deal with the things that hinder us or that drag us down. This week, Pastor Haley, out of the list, I picked this. Because this is something that I believe is so universal. It's something that every one of us in the room has and probably uh, once in a while still wrestle with. And that is the comparison trap. And it's a trap because we can get caught under it and get offended. Greek word for offense is the word skandalon. Uh, it literally is the trigger in the mouse trap where you put the bait of the cheese and when the, 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 the nose of the mouse or the little tongue or the teeth bite that and touch that and it triggers that scandalon and then boom, the trap snaps shut. Well, you talk. I believe the mouse gets offended when that happens. How many of you know? <laughs> and so um, the enemy has traps for us and one very obvious one is the comparison trap. And so today I want to talk to you for a few moments about breaking out of the comparison trap. Um, I'm going to let you stay seated. There is our text for the series that we do want to read because we want to continually familiarize ourselves with this over this eight-week summer series. Uh, and the text, I believe, is found in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And if you grew up hearing King James, it went like this. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be fully equipped, thoroughly equipped, thoroughly furnished is what the King James says, for every good work. And so this is how the message reads. Read out loud with me if you can see a, a screen somewhere. Every part of Scripture is God-breathed and useful one way or another, showing us truth, exposing our rebellion, 
correcting our mistakes, training us to live God's way. Through the Word, we are put together and shaped up for the tasks God has for us. Now, that's our series text that we're doing through this whole series, all eight weeks. Now, I want to give you a couple of locations of Scripture that are for mine today. The comparison trap, breaking out. Everybody say, breaking out. Breaking out of the comparison trap. So, we're going to look at the book of Galatians. By the way, I just want to give you a little quick commercial I'm excited. I'm already preparing for an eight-week series that I'm going to be teaching myself in the fall, beginning in October and November. Our life groups will be centered around this, and it's the the New Testament Pauline epistle or the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians is what God used to speak to Martin Luther 500 years ago, October 31st, 1517. Everybody say 500 years. So this fall, we're going to be celebrating and doing a series called Reformation 500. And it was from the books of Galatians, uh, Habakkuk in the Old Testament, Romans, one little line in the book of Hebrews that all say the phrase, the just shall live by faith. And Martin Luther grabbed that phrase and he nailed the 95 theses to the Wittenberg church door and the shot was heard around the world. And it's changed the world. It was a, not just a revival that was temporary, but it was a reformation that, that t- t- totally upheaved culture and authority and began to lead people more toward a biblical-centered uh, worldview and life. <clears throat> so, the book of Galatians gives us this passage in chapter 5. This is right following the, uh, the list of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, Um, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are all nine. And so that gives you context. He says, walk this way, live like this, produce the fruit of the Spirit, which is not a work that you, you, you attempt to try and generate in your own strength, but it's something that the Spirit of God does in your life. And so he says here, since this is the kind of life we have chosen, the life of the Spirit, Let us make sure that we do not just hold it as an idea in our heads where we just think about it, consider an idea, or a sentiment in our hearts, something that is nostalgic to us or that we're fond of but really don't do anything with it. Don't just hold it as an idea in our heads or a sentiment in our hearts, but work out its implications in every detail of our lives. Now look at what he says next. That means we will not want... We will not compare ourselves with each other as if one of us were, say it, better and another what? Worse. Here we go. We have far more interesting things to do with our lives. Each of us is and what? Start at the top of that. Let's read that paragraph together. Here we go. That means we will not compare ourselves with each other as if one of us were better and another worse We have far more interesting things to do with our lives. Each of us is an original. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful today for the privilege to stand before your people. These are your beloved. Thank you for the bride of Christ. Thank you that you bought her by your own precious blood. You wash her by the water of the word. Thank you today. Lord, that you have tapped us on the shoulder and you've called us by name out of the graves of sin and death. You've resurrected us unto new life. 
caused us to be born again into the family of God. That's an overwhelming concept. God, thank you that we don't just hold that as an idea in our heads or as sentiment in our hearts, but we work out that detail in every aspect of our lives. Grant us today by the power of the Holy Spirit to communicate clearly. Let me today, God, for this moment, speak as the oracles of God. I thank you, Lord, that you captivate my thoughts, that you be Lord in the midst of the words that I choose. God, I thank you today that I know that apart from you, I can do nothing, but I'm grateful, and I thank you that I also know that I'm no longer apart from you, but I'm in Christ. And through him, in and through him, I can do all things because you strengthen me. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts that see and perceive and understand. We'll be careful to give you the praise in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Thank you. Praise God. Um, One thing, one thing that I want to bring to bear, and I'll weave throughout this message, this one concept that I do. This This is my style and what I do. Everybody on the team doesn't do the same thing, and that's great. I love that. We're all different. I wish that I had the humor that Pastor Jeremy does. He is just funny and just, man, I'm just amazing. I wish that I had the grace and the articulation that Pastor Haley does. And the beautiful thing that we're going to be doing in this series is we're going to be inviting some new voices up with us during this staycation series. We're excited to be able to present them to you in the congregation, growing leaders in our church as we continue to expand the team. Somebody say amen. So the one thing, if you would go ahead, Sarah, and put that up for me, please. Read it out loud, everybody. God's intention isn't to make you like anyone else except what? Who? Jesus. Okay? He is the standard and measure for all life. Now, let's read it again now that we know what we're saying. God's intention isn't to make you like anyone else except Jesus. He is the standard and measure of all life. One more time. Let's get it. God's intention isn't to make you like anyone else except Jesus. He is the standard and measure for all of life. I was quoting Romans 8 just a moment ago, and if you keep on rolling through that passage, great chapter of victory, verse 29 of chapter 8 of Romans says, For for God foreknew those whom He called, He foreknew before the foundation of the world, that they should be, literally, the Bible says, made into the likeness and the image of His Son, that they would be that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. For those he foreknew, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And so God's idea is not just to give us Jesus and stop, but to give us Jesus and multiply his image throughout the whole planet. Come on, somebody. And so every believer, every person who has named the name of Christ and who has departed from iniquity and who has repented and turned from their past and fully threw their trust into God and God alone, the Bible says God begins the work of conforming you to the image of His Son that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Somebody say amen. So we'd ask the question today, recognizing that God's intention is not to make me like anybody else except Jesus alone. Because Jesus is the standard and the measure for all of life. I would ask the first question today. Why is comparison so bad? I mean, there are probably some positive aspects to it. Certainly if you are trying to improve a skill or 
want to get better at your golf game or let's say you want to become a better public speaker. Certainly learning, comparing in one sense of, of, of learning the different styles and techniques that someone might do to be able to follow through with their swing and drive the, the ball farther or maybe to be able to putt it correctly or maybe be able to speak something clearly articulate an idea, get something across so that people are able to grasp it, make something profound become simple, something that is complex, be understood by a child. There's a gift there. There's an ability. It is something that we want to uh, utilize by learning from others. So there are some positive ideas of comparison that I'm not throwing out the door. But that's not what we're here to talk about today. We're talking about comparing ourselves amongst ourselves, which the Apostle Paul says don't do in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 through 16. I won't take time to quote that today. But first of all, let's begin by just understanding our term. Let's define the word. If we define the word compare, it means to estimate, to measure, to note the similarity or the dissimilarity between. Now, I believe that my experience, and this is anecdotal, I'm speaking from experience, I don't have scientific surveys or studies that prove a statistic uh, or give you statistically what I'm saying is verified. I just believe it's truth after having been in the ministry for 30 plus years. I believe most people struggle with some, some kinds of insecurities. Would you agree with that? I think we go into a room. I, I, I'll be honest with you, Wednesday night I went over to Victory Bicycle Studio on Broad Street. It's the place where I bought my new bicycle. And um, I was there because I was enrolling in a couch to 50 mile bike ride because I was going to do a training class uh, to ride the big damn bridge in, in Little Rock. Now, that's D-A-M, not D-A-M-N, okay? Uh, it's called the damn, the damn bridge. It really is. <laughs> the damn bridge. There's no way I can say that and not get around it. Anyway, um, so um, if you don't think I didn't feel out of place, because I'm the only really fat boy there, and there was a couple other hefty brothers that I was like, hey, how you doing? Glad to see you. <laughs> And how many of you have ever been in a place where you just felt a little bit out of whack and a little bit socially awkward and really wondered if you even belonged there and all these little skinny, just, I want to just kick them and, you know, just, just slap them, little big, tall, good looking, and here I am over here just kind of spread out far and wide, you know. Hey, <laughs> I, 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 I'm just telling you that everybody in the room feels some insecurity sometimes. You get around, I remember... Uh, one of, this is just flashed, I didn't have this in my notes, but i got to tell it because it's so apropos. I was a sophomore in college at Arkansas State University and the president's wife heard me playing the piano one day and she invited me to the president's mansion. Carl Willock was the president of ASU at the time and Mrs. Willock invited me to play and th that opened the door for me that I actually played from then on the next three years and it was my spending money through college because I got to play at the President's Mansion at ASU and a really nice grand piano over in the corner of the room and I met senators and congressmen and people who owned millionaires at the time. I sat down at a table and ate after playing while they had a dinner party and had drinks and I played, you know, just popular, I guess, uh, sort of top 40 type stuff and threw in a sort of stylized hymn once in a while. Senator Birch Bayh walked over to me one day. He was a senator from Indiana who his wife had a battle with cancer and he got born again and filled with the Holy Spirit and tremendous testimony of God healing his wife and he asked me he said was that Andre Crouch's to God be the glory you just played I said yes sir it sure was 
And so there's just a lot of examples, stuff I've never really ever even told before because I've always felt like it would kind of be bragging. But Mrs. Willock heard me play the piano, and so for the next three years, they, played, they paid me, and this was the 1980s, folks, so I don't know if you realize how, how much I'm talking, how big a deal this was. They paid me $30 an hour, which really in musician terms is only 45 minutes, and you get a 15-minute break every hour. And so they play, pay, paid me 30 bucks an hour, and every party I ever played for was at least two hours, so I'd go once or twice a month and make 60 bucks, and that's back when I could put $10 and fill my tank up. That's when gas was 79 cents a gallon. Do you remember that? So all the young folks go, it was how much? <laughs> and, and, and I told all that, and I, I got to really lasso this in because I, I get, get out there and it gets further out in the range than I realize. But I sat at a table, and everybody at the table I sat at owned a plane except for me. There were Learjets sitting at the table that I got to sit at. Now, how many of you know the Bible says in, in the book of Proverbs do you see a man diligent in his business? He will stand before kings and not mean men. That doesn't mean that mean doesn't mean angry. It just means uh, obscure or average people. And so, because I never allowed myself to compare myself and become insecure about my gift, anytime I heard somebody else play that I felt like was better than me, I would get up and say, play, I want to watch you. I want to hear what you do. Because I knew that God had given me the ability to learn from them. And so instead of being jealous over somebody else's gift that might be at that time more developed than mine, I, uh, my Aunt Lucille taught me that. She said, don't ever play those little trivial, silly, silly games. It's immaturity to be jealous of somebody else's gift. If they are more developed than you are, get up off the bench and let them play and learn from them, son. And she pressed that into me because she, she was a little Pentecostal bouncing piano player who could tear it up. She was a nasty piano player, I'm going to tell you. She, and so she, a lot of the stuff that, that is in me kind of came from the foundation that, that she laid. And, and, and the reason that comparison is such a trap is because what it does is it produces something. It produces uh, feelings of inferiority or superiority. It produces feeling of insecurity or pride. And how do you know both of them are a problem? We all know that pride is a sin. But you know, the Bible also says that we should not think, we shouldn't think more highly of ourselves. But I really think most of the time the body of Christ is not struggling with feelings of superiority. I think we're struggling with a sense of inferiority and insecurity. And, and, and what was it? C.S. Lewis said it this way that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. You just learn to have your, your mind and your heart on others and their needs. Now, now, what was that one thing that we said again? Let me remind you. God's intention isn't to make you like anyone else except Jesus. He is the standard and measure of all life. Galatians 5, it ended with by saying that each of us is an original. Everybody say an original. Now, if you're an original, you realize there's nobody else really that you can compare yourself to. You don't need to waste the time doing that because it's only going to produce something that's not going to generate the character or the image of Jesus in your life. There's some biblical examples. I'm not going to take time to dive too deeply into the stories. Saul and David. Saul was fine, excited, good looking, handsome. The Bible says that the men of Israel literally were, were, were captivated by his. His heart had drawn them in and, and the Bible describes him as a handsome man, head and shoulders, tall above all of the other men of Israel. And so everything on the outside looked like the, 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 perfect, the perfect example of leadership. 
But yet inside his heart, he had not let God wrestle down some of the insecurities. And so when David came along and the women of Israel started taking their tambourines and writing the little ditties and singing, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul turns on the radio and he hears the top 100, the top 40 hit going, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Guess what it begins to generate in his own heart? Comparison that produces inferiority. Inferiority that began to produce envy. Envy that produced hatred, hatred that tried to murder David. Comparison will always produce something that you don't want to see working in your life. We remember the story of Joseph and his brothers and a dad who literally was obsessed with one son because he loved that son's mama more than he did the other one. And, you know, that's, that's why the Bible tells us that we should be the husband of one wife. The New Testament kind of straightens some mess out that they were culturally accepting in the Old Covenant and that God basically kind of winked at. And in the New Testament, we recognize that we can't operate in that kind of an atmosphere of comparison and envy. And we commonly use the word jealousy, and I'm going to correct the difference between the two here in just a second. But you remember the story, Jacob loved Joseph, and he doted over him, and he, he treated him like the, the teacher's pet and the favorite among all the others, and it just made the other sons hate Joseph. And they threw him in a pit. And all of this really was actually part of the sovereign plan of God because God used all of that to eventually, through a 13-year period of imprisonment and false accusation, God finally put Joseph as second in command on the throne of Egypt as prime minister under the Pharaoh himself. So God has the ability to work through. Don't sit around wasting your time blaming your mama and your daddy because you think they didn't raise you right because God can still redeem it and bring blessing in your life regardless of that. Come on. To take time on why parents ought not do what Jacob did is another message and so I can't go there. Jealousy and envy are not the same thing. They are not synonyms in the Bible. We should be jealous because God is a jealous God. Why would God tell us not to do something that He is Himself? The Bible doesn't say God does jealous things. It says God is jealous over His people. Jealous and zealous are the exact same word. God's jealousy over you is because He is zealous over you with a white-hot fervent heat, a love for you. Jealousy is right in that it longs for that which is rightfully yours. That's why husbands can be jealous over their wives when they see other men flirting with them. Now I want to draw a line of distinction between the two because jealousy and envy are not the same thing. The Bible clearly tells us in the Ten Commandments, the last one being the, the, the one that I believe if we are able to by the Spirit keep the first nine, then ten becomes the reward. We, we hear it in religious language, thou shalt not covet. Well, what does that mean? How many times did you use that at the water cooler at work this week? Well, I'm just real covetous over your outfit, sweetie. That's just so cute. No, nobody talks like that. And so what is covetousness? What does that mean? It is an unfortunate old English Elizabethan term that was used to translate an idea of envying something, of, of, of wanting something that is not rightfully yours, it belongs to somebody else. Envying that man's wife, 
envying his boat, his car, his house, his three-car garage, his place in the community, his influence, envying her shoes or her outfit or her engagement ring or her status or whatever else, her popularity at school. Envying things are desiring things that are not rightfully ours. Jealousy is a proper thing when we align it with the Word of God and understand God's nature, that God is jealous over His people. He does not want us flirting with false gods. He wants us fully devoting our attention to Him and loving Him with all of our hearts. Envy is the real issue that we need to speak to. Now remember the one thing? What was the one thing? God's intention isn't to make you like anyone else except Jesus. He is the standard and the measure for all of life. Now, once in a while, I, I have to back up because I actually ask the question. I know you do. I know you don't expect me to as a pastor. You think I ought to be beyond that. And that's religious thinking. It's just silly Bible Belt uh, nonsense that's not biblical at all. Uh, and it's just an idea that we have about Christianity and we think that leaders just ought to be never have any kind of bad thought. They never should never have an attitude. And all you've got to do is turn on the TV, watch Christian television a little bit, and you ought to grow up no better than that. I mean, are we so far away from the Jim and Tammy Baker scandals or the Jimmy Swaggart scandals or, the, my goodness, all the scandalized, the scandalon being trapped by prosperity and affluence and all of the things that have happened in our generation by preachers that we can continue to hold the idea that they somehow are above that? No, I have to wrestle down thoughts every day just like you do. I have to, 2 Corinthians 10.5, cast down imaginations and every high thing which exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bring into captivity every thought that I have and make it obedient to Christ. No, that's not me. No, that's not Christ. That's not, that may have been who I used to be, but that's not who I am anymore. I am born again. The righteousness of God is inside me. Come on, somebody. Now, is it really worth the struggle to do right? I, I mean, I, I'll be honest. I, I, I have faced these issues personally. I have, I have looked over my life when I was struggling to f- see a dream brought to pass in a little fledgling congregation of 35 people, barely making it, working a couple of jobs when I first came back here. Wife, my wife was working, and, and we're doing the best we can just to keep food on the table and keep our children clothed. Probably couldn't have done that if it hadn't been for generous, blessed grandparents who probably clothed my babies the first five years of their lives. And so we're just struggling. And and I'll be honest, I'm sitting out here and I'm looking out here and I'm seeing Mr. Successful and he's fornicating on his wife. He's cheating in his position at work. He's a con man. And he's living in a big house and he's making six figures back in the late 1980s, early 1990s. And I'm, I'm resentful. I'm going, God, here I am pouring out my life for you in this place that I didn't pick, by the way. Because I remember leaving here when I graduated high school and said, I'm never coming back here. And God said, ha, <laughs> And so sometimes I ask, is it really worth the struggle? And some of you are probably going, wow, pastor, really? Now, these are things that I don't wrestle with so much anymore these days. But it certainly was something that was present in my mind. Then, How many of you know the enemy will work in and plant thoughts and try to do everything he can to go, see, you ain't no good. If you were really good enough... 
Look at the other pastor down the street. Look how successful his church is. You know, if the enemy can't make you sin, he will distract you and try to get you to have a bad attitude. Come on. Which can become a sin. Come on. And so I want, I want to show you just for the last few moments here today, we've, we've asked the question, we've defined comparison, we've, we've talked about biblical examples, but I want to give you the meat of the message. Here it is right here in this, this, this section. And I want to go to Psalm 73, and I want to talk about uh, the, the director of music under David's administration. His name was Asaph. Now I just want to say to you that... Uh, Trying to get musicians to work together is like herding cats. I love our musicians. I want to tell you right now, these are amazing. We have less drama in this praise team than we've ever had in years. And I love it. And we aim to keep it that way. Uh, we have people who genuinely care for each other and that are not all insecure and all tied up in what their gift is and I'm better at this than you are at that. I learned a long time ago when I was the minister of worship in a growing church in North Carolina in the, in, the 18, in the 1980s, I didn't win the 1880s, in the 1980s, and I would always tell them, I would always say, don't let me hear you using the word better than about somebody else's voice, about someone else's keyboard skills, whether they can shred on the guitar or not, do they have beats on the drums, all of these things, don't use the phrase better than. I, I want you to acknowledge when you compare, I want you to use the phrase more developed. Because when you use the phrase more developed, you're acknowledging that that person has spent the time practicing, building the skill, and I, recognizing that, am going to be motivated to take personal responsibility and practice more myself and become more developed. Because if somebody else is just better than me, then I can just go, you know, blame it on God. Why would you give them so much talent? You didn't give me any. How, am, am I helping somebody this morning? And so with musicians, I always demanded of them, I said, don't use the phrase better than, but use the phrase more developed. And then turn and take that as motivation to dig in and, and, and develop your talent into a skill for the glory of God. Now, Asaph, I, I believe, um, with this thing with musicians, somebody said one time, Jesus said in the New Testament, I beheld Satan fall from heaven as lightning. And it was one of the reformers, I don't remember which one it was, it may have been Calvin, said this, yet yeah, when he fell, he fell into the choir loft of the church. <laughs> Lucifer. <laughs> and any of you who are musicians or have been in part of the traditional churches and choir and all that kind of stuff, you can know exactly what I'm talking about. I don't have to explain it. And if you're not, then just bear with me. But Asaph is really struggling. He's a musician. He's under David administration and this is what he says I want to just look at the chapter let me just put this down and I want to look at the chapter and let's let's dissect this for a few minutes so he begins he says in Psalm 73 we're going to get the whole chapter so hang in with me no doubt about it God is good everybody say God is good well that's pretty good he's got good theology he's starting out right in the very beginning he says no doubt about it God is good he's good to good people he's good to the good hearted but look what he says but I nearly missed it I missed seeing His goodness. Something had obscured it for a moment because I was so consumed with a number of other things that were going on around me. Let's go ahead. I was looking the other way. Looking up to the people at the top, envying, there's that word right there, envying the wicked who have it made, who have nothing to worry about, 
not a care in the whole wide world. And you know, we all look at other people and we think, man, he's sitting in a bird's nest on the ground. He's the dude's got it made. And we don't even realize that he's addicted to prescription drugs. He may be stepping out on his wife. His kids, his family may be breaking up almost at the point of complete destruction of the family unit. And we look on the outside and we see a, a big house and we see you know, late model cars and we see cool clothes and expensive jewelry and, 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 and expensive meals that people eat out at and we think, man, look at them. They don't have a care in the world. And we know they're not believers and we wonder how it is that they can do this. They're pretentious with their arrogance. They wear the latest fashions in violence, pampered and overfed, decked out in silk bows of silliness. They jeer using words to kill. They bully their way with words. Sounds a little bit like Hollywood. They're full of hot air. Loud mouths disturbing the peace. And this is amazing. He says, people actually listen to them. Can you believe it? Like thirsty puppies, they lap up their words. What's going on here? Is God out to lunch? Can you guys get in these words with me for just a few moments? And feel the struggle, the tension, the frustration of Asaph, a godly man who is attempting to teach the people of Israel how to worship the one true God and how to keep their hearts right toward the Lord and he's really struggling because he sees the difference in how the wicked are, wicked are living and they're getting away with it. He says, nobody's tending the store. It's got out to lunch. The wicked get by with everything. They have it made. They're piling up riches. I remember one time my son Drew said, Dad, why is it all of my buddies do stuff like crazy all the time? You have no idea. And they all get away with it. I can try anything and I get caught. I said, son, that's the blessing of God. He said, yeah, how you figure that? I said, because your great granddaddy and your grandparents and me and your mom have prayed that down on you. You're marked. Hand of God is on your life. What you don't realize is that when people do wrong things and don't get caught, that's a sign of the judgment of God. They'll just keep staying in a downward cycle of destruction and death. But you can't go out here. Every little fat cop in Marion chased my son all over town. Never drank. Never in jail. I mean, you know, he was forking yards. He was tackling dummies. People down my street in my neighborhood go, Oh, that's the preacher's kid. And he destroyed my children's Halloween blow-up things. I mean, he was just pulling mess, just like boys do. And just trying to have a good time and staying out of trouble. And he would say, I always get caught. And how is that a blessing? And I would say, because there will be a time when you will grow up and you will realize that it's the hand of God. How many of you know you can have your heart right going to heaven, but you can still be running from the destiny God has for your life? Come on, somebody. And you get out and you get rebellious and you try to pull stuff. Doesn't mean you're, that you're, you're dying and going to hell. Doesn't mean that you're you know, against God. But just means you're, you're just immature. Just means you need to grow up. And oh my God, goodness, that was, that was me banging my head against the wall and, 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 and tanning his hide a few times when he was little. When he got bigger than me, it was no more tanning any hide. It was taking away phones and cars and, and stuff and going, set your... Okay, I just filtered it, just edited. Sit your butt down right there. <laughs> you're not going anywhere, young man, because you're going to have to learn how to grow up and cut this mess out. Now, Drew was going, why is it all these people get to do all this stuff? He says, 
Asaph is saying, I've been stupid to play by the rules. What has it gotten me? A long run of bad luck, that's what. A slap in the face every time I walk out the door. And he says, but oh, if I'd given in and talked like this. He's he's just giving us a glimpse. He's saying, this is where I was. And he said, if I'd kept on this track and this train of thought, and if I'd given in and let myself be totally consumed by these ideas, and I had kept talking like this, I would have betrayed your dear, dear children, God. Still, when I tried to figure it out, all I got was a splitting headache. Come on, are you, are, you, are you still with me this morning? Come on, I, this is getting real because this is where we all are. Until I entered the sanctuary of God. Everybody say until. I want to tell you that word is so powerful in my life right now. Until is pregnant with expectation. Until. There is, there is an until in my life even though I, I, I feel like my precious wife's suicide was not a period. It was a semicolon. Matter of fact, that is the symbol of suicide survivors, a semicolon. Okay, it comes at a pause. It punctuated my life and I stopped. But my life has to go on. I have to press on until I see him face to face. And and this, this is what... This is what Asaph said. He said, I was consumed with all of this comparison and inferiority and frustration and anger and envy until I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I saw the whole picture, the slippery road that you put them on with a final crash in a ditch of delusions. Everybody say this. Say sowing and reaping. I'm going to tell you. And I don't know what you think about this. and I'm not going to politicize this, but there's something wrong in our society. And I am so pro-law enforcement. Every policeman know this. I am for you. I love you. But when you video somebody killing a man and it goes up on Facebook and they still acquit him, something is messed up with our justice system. We pray for the family of Philando Castile this week. Not saying the young officer should, should go to jail for the rest of his life, but he, ought, he should have something, at least manslaughter. Because he just was scared. Well, you know what? You ought to be trained so that you don't just shoot somebody every time you're scared. Okay, I'll leave that alone. Are, are, you, are y'all with me this morning? In the blink of an eye, disaster, a blind curve in the dark and a nightmare, and we wake up and we rub our eyes and nothing, there's nothing to them and there never was. When I was beleaguered and bitter, totally consumed by what? Say it. I was eaten up with it. I was looking at everybody else. I was looking to those at the top. I was consumed with all that they have and what I don't have. And I was comparing and I was coming up short. I was feeling inferiority. I was experiencing insecurity at a deep level. And he says, I was totally consumed by envy. I was totally ignorant, a dumb ox in your very presence. Well, let me, let me just say this to you. I'd rather be a dumb ox in his presence than to be a dumb ox outside of his presence. I have been a dumb ox in his presence. And I'm thankful to God that he allowed me to be in his presence. See, this is the religious idea is, oh, you better deal with all that and get rid of it before you can come to God. God says, no, I know your sin. I'm totally aware of it. I sent my son with a full, complete awareness and a complete disclosure, knowing everything that you've already done, what you're thinking about doing. And I'm telling you, I love you anyway. There's nothing you can do to make me love you more. There's nothing you can do to make me love you less. And he invites the world into his presence. And the beautiful thing about his presence is that it transforms us out of the old thing that we were and into the new thing that he is. Come on, somebody. The image of Jesus. Look at this. 
We're wrapping it up. I'm still in your presence, but look at this. Everybody say, but. That's another word that's powerful for me right now. But God. I'm still in your presence, but you've taken my hand. See, that's what I told Drew. I said, you know, son, you're running around with some buddies that ever, they don't have their hand in the hand of the Lord. But God's got yours. Whether you're hanging on or not, he's hanging on to you. How many of you know that sometimes when I'm not hanging on, he, he grips me? I, I, I'm thankful that he doesn't let go even when I feel like mine is, mine is slacking just a little bit. Come on, somebody. If this thing were dependent on me always hanging on to stay saved, I would have fallen out a whole lot time, a long time ago. But thank God he doesn't let go of you. Come on. I'm still in your presence, but you've taken my hand. You wisely and tenderly lead me, and then you bless me. When I can get my focus off of everybody else and what they have and what I don't, and I can recognize that God's got this thing. He's got my hand. He's walking with me through these circumstances. When I let Him lead me, then He begins to bless me. All of you know about Abby singing at Saturday Night Live in, in December. And we as a congregation rejoiced and we, we, we blessed her and pray for her. But what you don't know is, is because I didn't tell this one, it's, she was actually at Saturday Night Live in November, but didn't get to sing. She sang on three selections of a legendary hip-hop band called A Tribe Called Quest. It'll be nominated for a Grammy this year. She'll go to the Grammys this year and possibly... Anyway... Sang on three songs on this legendary album. And they flew her to New York City. And she went in for rehearsals. And at the last minute, Q-Tip, Q-Tip the abstract they called him, changed the set list. And the set list that had songs that Abby was supposed to be singing now didn't have the songs that Abby was supposed to sing. And they changed the set list. And so... I called after practice and I said, how are you doing, sweetheart? And she said, I'm not singing. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, they changed the set list. Well, it just washed over me. And immediately I said, are you okay? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm grieving because this is my baby. This is her hopes. I know what she's been working for her whole life. And she said, oh, yeah, Dad, I'm fine. It's just not my time yet. Now, lest you think I'm just trying to magnify my child, I, I, I don't understand that. She didn't get that from me. I don't understand that. Because I was a little bit on the edge, offended that they changed the set. Flew her to New York and then changed the set list. And she said, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm totally fine, Dad. It's just not my time yet. And she said, Dad, are you there? And I'm just like tears coming down my cheeks. And I said, God, how, how did this happen? How, how, did, how did she have such security in who you are in her life and the gift of God that you've given her that she's not worried about getting right there to it, smelling it, and then it being taken away from her? And you know what? When I was back with her in December, she said, you know, Dad, let me tell you why I could say to you it's not my time yet. Because God brought me here in November to let me meet all these people and let me get comfortable in how all this is going to work so that when I came in the next time and I could sing, I wouldn't be nervous. Come on, put your hands together. I, 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 want, I want you to hear that, learn that. She was 21 years old at the time she said those words to me. And I want, there's such a spiritual lesson in that. See, so many times we believe hard and we work hard and we're trusting God and we get up to the moment and all of a sudden something changes. And I want to tell you, your response in that moment has everything to do with whether or not God will open up bigger doors than you could have ever imagined. If you show out and show an attitude, you've probably just shut down the opportunity for a future that was looking right at you in the face and it was just 30 days away. 
but you wanted to get upset about it. Oh, that should help every one of us in the room. She said, no, Dad, I'm not upset. It's just not my time yet. You know, there was something on John. There was something on Jesus. Jesus looked at his mother and he said, no, don't press me. It's not my time. I know, that, I know that in the timing of God, the favor of the Lord's on my life, that He's going to show me to all of Israel. Abby knows that. She, she knows that God's blessed her. There's a destiny of God on her life. And is not sweating every door or opportunity or circumstance that's put before her. Let me finish this. I'm still in your presence, but you've taken my hand. You've wisely and tenderly led me, and then you bless me. Look at this. And notice what happens when He's able to wrestle down this envy. He's come to the realization that if... If he has the Father, he has everything. Come on, you can labor and you can sell your soul to the devil and you can have all of the possessions and the material things of the world and then die empty. But if you have the Father, you have everything that you need. He says, you're all I want in heaven. You're all I want on earth. When I get old, I don't like the way he's describing this. When my skin sags and my bones get brittle. Maybe I should stay fat because it at least keeps all the skin stretched out. I don't know. <laughs> Y'all still here this morning? When my skin sags and my bones get brittle, God is rock firm and faithful. Look! Those who left you are falling apart. And this is the end. Deserters, they'll never be heard from again. But I'm in the very presence of God. Look at me. Come on, raise your hands right now. Say, Lord. If I have you, I have everything. Come on, that's it right there. He says, oh, how refreshing it is. I've made Lord God my home. God, I'm telling the world what you do. Wow. Nothing changed until he entered the sanctuary of God. Don't ever overestimate how important it is for you to get here to the house of the Lord and worship. Because it can change your perspective. It can help you see things you've been struggling with. When you get God's perspective, don't forget the one thing. God's intention isn't to make you like anyone else except Jesus. He is the standard and the measure for all of life. Five practical points real quick. Number one, find your identity in Christ. Everybody say identity. Number two, know yourself and your giftings and stay in your lane. Look, the worst thing for you to do is to think you can sing when you can't carry a tune in a bucket. Well, you know, God doesn't care. He said, make a joyful noise. Yeah, but God ain't the only one that's listening to you, sweetheart. Y'all still love me this morning? Number three, don't compare. It will only identify inferiority and superiority, which generates insecurity or pride. Number four, there will always be someone who has more, and there will always be someone who has less. I don't care where you live, how successful you become, you will always meet people who have more. You will always meet people who have less. Be confident in who you are. Number five, and I'm finished. Have you gotten anything out of this today? Number five, be jealous of what is rightfully yours. But do not be envious of what is not yours. Bow your hearts with me for a word of prayer.